Welcome to Deckert's Committed Capital, where PE leaders open their playbooks to discuss today's PE trends. Thank you for joining us for another episode of our Committed Capital PE podcast series. My name is Steve Pratt, and I'm a private equity and financial services M&A partner at Deckert. In this episode, we will explore certain trends and key considerations relating to private equity investments in the financial services industry. I'm delighted to have with us two expert investors in this space. Before we jump into our discussion, let me turn it over to our panelists to introduce themselves. Hi, my name is John Little. I'm the managing partner of Alderwood Capital. Uh, we're a relatively new firm investing in the asset management boutique space, but we've been together as a team doing that for around 20 years, so we know the space very well. Hi, my name is Takashi Moriuchi. I'm a co-founder of a firm called Astachia Capital Management. We, too, are a relatively new firm, um, have been around for about 10 years relative to the larger firms in the space. Uh, we've raised over $420 million uh, and focus on the financial services industry, specifically balance sheet light companies um, that can weather market downturns well, look for reoccurring fees and high margin businesses. Great. Thanks, John Takashi. When we talk about the financial services sector, we're discussing a broad global industry. What makes financial services an attractive sector today for private equity? And how do you think about your investments in this space? When we're thinking about the financial services sector, and I just mentioned from an intro standpoint, what we're looking for are the companies that can manage through difficult times and also take advantage of rising rates and in positive times when the economy is expanding as well. Uh, we do have a narrow focus on what we look at. Um, we are looking, as I mentioned, balance sheet light companies. So that excludes firms like insurance companies or sectors like insurance and banking uh, and specialty finance. What we think uh, makes us different and special and what is good about the space where we're looking at uh, is it's very fragmented, it's very large, and it's a big piece of the overall U.S. economy. And as a result of that, we think any private equity investor should have an allocation to that. And as a result, there's also multiple opportunities that we do come across as a result of the sector being attractive from an investment standpoint. Uh, I know we'll get into it a little bit more, but um, there are areas uh, that obviously are very um, active right now, and there's other parts of the market that are less so uh, in the U.S. I know John's going to talk a little bit more globally, but uh, we think that this is a great space to invest if you're a private equity investor. Yeah, thanks, Takashi. We, we, we focus um, on an even more narrow space, to be honest, which is uh, you know, boutique specialist asset managers. And what I mean by that, we look at you know focused boutique specialist asset management firms globally. We think that they're particularly attractive, and actually the asset management space in general is very attractive because, I mean, first of all, if you look at the historic margins, you know they are really, really high, uh, and, they, and, and they've been high since the late 80s, right the way through the 90s, even the way you think about 2008, you know, the average asset manager earned a margin of around 28 percent you know when most other financial services businesses couldn't make money at all and so we think it's attractive from that perspective and we also think there's one other reason is that um if you think about asset management in general it's it's kind of eating the lunch of other parts of the financial services sector you know we've seen you know for example private credit is is, is perhaps the best known example where you know gradually all the prime lending from bank balance sheets has migrated into the private credit industry but you could do the same in infrastructure you could think the same in things like ILS uh, where things have moved from insurance company balance sheets to fund management firms. So we see that as a very attractive tailwind for the sector. And like many other sectors, we're continuing to see an overall trend towards consolidation in the financial services industry. What are some of the key drivers of that robust deal activity we're seeing in that space? 
Well, I could be quite cynical and say that it's sort of lemming-like. I mean, you know, globally, every single you know asset management CEO or financial services CEO thinks that the only way that they're going to become relevant is to get bigger. Um, you know, we see it as you know the urge to merge, and quite often, to be honest, particularly in the asset management sector that we look at, it's firms that have a wide product set where part of that product set is either mediocre or failing rushing out to do deals with someone who fills a hole for them you know so for example you know in private credit which i just mentioned particularly you know if, if you don't have a private credit business every large generalist asset manager has to go and get one they have to have an infrastructure business they have to have a real estate business so we're seeing quite a lot of um relatively i think uninformed deal making going on in the sector as people think i need to tick a box i'll pick up on that too um one of the areas that we focus on as part of our investment strategy is also asset management. Um, one of the things that we'd like to bring to the table is, is also our operating experience based on having uh, spent a lot of time investing in that space. So everything that John just mentioned, I agree with. Um, I think for us, as we've watched the industry evolve, you will always have and will ebb and flow strategic buyers out there that are looking to do just that, fill a box uh, for better, for worse. And right now, you know, credit, as John just mentioned, is very hot. Um, there are other things, though, that are consistent that we believe uh, are interesting. And when you think about consolidation, I think any buyer is looking for this, uh, certainly capacity-constrained product, active share where investors are still going to pay for that. So those specialized strategies are still very much in demand. What we're also seeing, and you've seen this both cross-border and here at home, um, you have activists that are getting involved in publicly traded asset management firms that are trying to drive uh, even some of the larger public firms to become even bigger to drive out efficiencies. Um, for private equity investors like John and I, you know, that's a really attractive situation to watch. Um, one of our most recent portfolio companies that's doing really well, uh, we were able to find it. It was orphaned, which we try to find these situations. We call them orphaned opportunities because of the acquisition uh, that Janice did with Henderson a couple years ago. Um, and you see this uh, happening time and again as there is a drive for consolidation to take out costs. Um, strategy, investment strategy is not necessarily what's driving that. It's more about lowering operating costs. And as a result, you can often find very, very interesting opportunities uh, on the other side of that. And just to focus a bit on that thread, while there are certainly M&A financial advisors that specialize in this space, there seem to be plenty of deals in the financial services industry, particularly mid-market deals that get done without bankers or deal finders. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you found success in sourcing deals. Sure. Well, first of all, you know, for if there's any investment bankers out there listening, we love investment bankers. Uh, uh, they are some of our best places uh, to find opportunities. But I would say also as a result of, um, and I'm sure John will mention this too, spending our whole careers in this space, you develop a network um, and you develop a network of relationships. And this is what we think makes investing with specialists, private equity specialists that specialize in specific parts of the market valuable because we are finding deals that are different. Um, it's everything from executives that we've worked for in the past or worked with in the past, portfolio companies that we've invested in the past. There are individuals within firms that we know that are very connected that send us information. Again, using the example of Geneva Capital Management, we had two different industry network relationships call us in the same week saying, hey, there's this boutique firm inside Janus. They have $5 billion, really great business, but 
uh, Janus has a $40 billion practice in the same asset classes, and they're, they're orphaned. And they want to uh, basically continue to operate the business, and they need help spinning, you know, basically spinning out. And we help them approach Janus directly to do that. So that's just a very specific example. But those types of relationships that take decades to build, I think, are what make us partly make us special uh, as we are sourcing opportunities that are different and therefore providing a different return stream to our investors. So yes, I agree with Takashi. There, there are some very good advisors in this space. We, we tend to focus on the boutique firms rather than the large players because they just don't have the bandwidth or, or, or they're not really paying attention to the smaller opportunities. But there are some great people both here in the US but also in the UK and elsewhere. Um, but, we, but we also source quite a lot of deals ourselves. We, we look back and we reckon it's about 60% of all of our past transactions have been sourced in some way privately. And, and again, it comes from you know a client of one of our managers says you should look at these guys. We've had a situation where we've gone to see a client of one of our managers and they were owned by private equity and then we got into a discussion with them and that and we ended up doing that deal. That was Strategic Investment Group in Arlington, Virginia, which we did in 2018. Um, and, and so we find that whilst the advisors play a role, it really is a people business. I mean, if you think about the people we're dealing with, quite often it's founders and they want to deal with somebody directly rather than have a banker intermediate or spend too long getting in the way of the process. It's really about the relationship. Consistent with trends in the broader M&A market, we continue to see fierce competition for deals in the financial services sector. What are the two of you doing to differentiate yourselves to make your pitch the most compelling? Well, actually, the answer to this question actually follows from the last one. Um, if you think about the people we're doing deals with, quite often they're founders. They're very proud of the business that they founded. Um, other than you know their marriage and the birth of their kids, it's the most important thing they've done in their lives. So we see one of our big differentiators is the fact that you know we, the principals, we're a small firm. The people they're dealing with are the people that run our firm, and they're going to have us on their board. They're going to be talking to us every day. Um, you know, these people don't want to be deal six in Fund Twelve. You know, it, it doesn't appeal to them. You know, think of the whole of their career, the whole of their life is built up to the point where they sell the firm and become one of 30 deals. It doesn't really appeal to people. So we think that is a first advantage. The second thing is we know the business. We're asset management people through and through. We, on average, our team have been working in the business for 27 years. Um, all the partners and some, some of us 35 or more years. So we really understand the business. They don't need to explain things to us or clarify how things work. We get it and they feel like we're on the journey with them. And I think that is a differentiator for us. Yeah, I'll pick up where, where John left off. I would say, yeah, it's very similar um, for us, maybe taking up a high level for us. And for first, how we source opportunities. There's an element of, as we've talked about, where we're getting inbound through our network, but we also go out and proactively uh, cultivate these relationships. Uh, our most recent investment in a company called R&T Depository Network, we were courting for four years. Um, and so it just takes some time, but it's very important in picking up on that personal connection that John mentioned. At the end of the day, this is the most likely a wealth creating event for the management teams that we're talking with. And so you want to spend time, uh, and these are the transactions that are not process driven, really spending time with the management team and creating that personal relationship. Uh, the thing that I, similar to John mentioned, that I think really differentiates us as well is the ability for us within five minutes when you sit down across the table from an owner of a business and you can ask a couple pointed questions in a, you know, in a very nice way, and just, but immediately you understand pretty quickly based on their answers what their pressure points are and where they're having problems. Typically, it's around distribution. How do I get more distribution across various types of industries within financial services. 
And that's where, because of our background expertise, having been operators, we can immediately get into, hey, this is, you know, we've seen this before, and this is some of the things that we've done. You get to a very um, rich conversation as a result of that, and they then view you as, you know, obviously there's going to be negotiations, but they view you as being true partners and being on the same t- side of the table once you get through the, the legals and having to deal with attorneys like Deckard. Um, and, you know, kind of the negotiations is a means to the end uh, because then you're, you're already talking about strategically what can we do within the first you know, six months of being involved. Uh, so that I think that's really a key differentiator for us. We don't have to come in, relearn the business, uh, ask like an asset management, what's net flows? You know, I've been in meetings where uh, you talk to management teams and they've had to explain what net flows are uh, to the previous group that was in, and that just is the biggest turnoff. So for us, I think uh, both us, uh, John and I, that's a big advantage for us being specialists. I agree with you 100%. And we find that um, you know that approach of us being hands-on stops a situation occurring where by the end of the process, the target feels like they've been through the ringer. I mean, we picked up a few uh, deals where there's been a failed process where they started off happy and friendly. And by the end of it, because it's more of a machine yeah. type acquisition, the target feels like they've been spat out, you know, and they just put their hands up and say, you know what, if this is what life's going to be like, we'd rather not be part of this deal. And I think it's very important that there's that sense of ownership. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think there's an ability to kind of cut through uh, maybe with some other, and not being disrespectful to generalists, but where you see they're very focused on maybe the numbers or the metrics as opposed to the strategy. Of course, we're always going to be disciplined. I'm sure you are as well. But there's, there's an element of being able to really identify what's key and focusing on that and being commercial about everything else. And although representation and warranty insurance is ubiquitous these days in the broader private equity M&A market, we sometimes get questions about its utility in the financial services sector, particularly because regulatory and civil penalties can be a high concern but may not be covered by the insurance. Uh, Takashi, have you used rep and warranty insurance in the past and are you bullish on its value in the financial services space? I am. Um, the last three investments that we've made, uh, we have utilized that. It is uh, a deepening marketplace uh, from the for service providers. We, as a theme, and we like to identify themes, you know, one of the things we'll be working on is are there opportunities in this space as a way to play on the private equity or, or alternatives growth uh, where there's a lot of transactions happening. We believe that uh, it is to the benefit of both the buyer and the seller. Uh, you don't have to spend you know, probably weeks. Our experience have been weeks talking about what the reps, warranties, and covenants are going to be about. You can get a full set uh, of indemnifications, and it benefits as long as the company is strong and clean, which you know, the vast majority of the businesses that are transacting are. Um, the insurance companies are very willing and able to underwrite that, and they do it in a very timely fashion. And you know, I think they're doing really well from a premium standpoint, but it certainly um, cuts down on a lot of going back to that point about ill kind of those sticky points that can creep into the relationship. It certainly makes it a lot easier when you're able to utilize that that, that kind of new technology. So we plan to use it in every transaction going forward because um, we think there's a real benefit to it. Great. Takashi, John, thank you for joining me today and for your insight. Thank you for listening to Deckert's Committed Capital. Please subscribe, and for more information, visit Deckert.com.